recorded from a dark cellar on a fancy expert Thursday. It's fancy expert Thursday business pants. It is November the 9th, 2023. Today, we're dropping our full hour-long interview with the exceptional, the godmother of governance, the queen of the proxy castle, Nell Minow. We'll cover in the interview the anti-woke, the history of ISS and the corporate library, how some things have changed, how some things haven't. It's all here, but no more from me. Here's Nell. Uh, we have the great Nell Minow on the show today. Mel, Nell, I, I found so like many different ways. Of, wait, wait, I, hold on. I'm getting there. I have so many different ways to, to describe her. Allow me to hit my list. Here we go. And, and okay. you guys can choose which one do you, you prefer. And yes, Matt, you do have a vote here. An early the, game. I like the queen that. of good, the queen of good of good corporate governance from Business Week. Although I always called you the queen of corporate governance. Period. I didn't know it was good corporate <laughs> governance, right? I I didn't know there was a distinction. But then the good witch. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's just we could describe you by your lifetime achievement awards from ICGN, corporate secretary. I, I know you just entered some kind of hall of fame with with one of our frequent guests, Doug Chaw, right? You're in some Hall of Fame now? Yes, we are. Uh, yep, that's also the corporate secretaries. That one is especially dear to my heart because it's one thing if the people who are on your side give you awards, uh-huh. but when the people that you're fighting with give you awards, that's kind of sweet. No, that is, that's not, yeah, you're not just in the echo chamber. You're in the the other chamber, whatever that's called. Yeah, the movie mom, of course, mm-hmm. which is how most people around, at least in Portland, the corporate library, they, they like to refer you to as the movie mom. Your your co founder of I, I I the corporate library and GMI ratings. Anything else I'm missing on that list? Okay, so you are you are a co founder of ISS with Bob Monks. Yeah. yeah. And then you're currently vice chair at Value Edge Advisors. But is there a better way to describe you? How do you how do you announce yourself usually? Um, usually, I just say I'm an advocate for shareholders. Okay. Queen wow. of shareholder That's advocacy. F- oh, see, you added the queen. Um, well, I, Nell's yeah, way is more, much more succinct. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, thanks for joining us. So I, I sent to you yesterday that we're going to kind of break this up into three parts. We're going to have a big general discussion about just sort of ESG. So that could go anywhere. But um, I know Matt and I are kind of keen to go back a little bit to, you know, he just had your textbook in his hand. So... I think Matt's feeling a little bit historical, but then we'll just do like we, we, we do with a lot of our guests. We'll play a, a couple of silly games. I have uh, an honor of succession, which I think is kind of the the pinnacle of ESG and pop culture programming. Um, I have a few succession like movies, TV shows that I'd like to get your thoughts on. Um, and then we have a at the very end, we have a game that the same game we play with John Lukomnik just want to get your your reaction to some I call it the 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 quick and dirty nerdy agree or disagree corporate governance game just to get your reaction about just some of the lingering things in corporate governance that we've we got, that Matt and I are, talk about repeatedly yeah go ahead Matt pithy pithy names for everything the Quick and nerdy, <laughs> dirty, gertie. We're whatever. trying to make ESG and corporate governance seem interesting. Okay, this is our goal here at this company. It's a, struggle. <laughs> it's a high bar. Yeah. 
<laughs> so let's start, and Matt, and and now both of you, I mean, this is not like a, stru- it doesn't have to be a structured thing, so feel free to, to take this into conversation mode, but let's start, I want to start with the corporate library, because, you know, that's where I was born in the corporate governance world, and uh, founded around 2000, I, I, I mean, can we at least go back and like, do you have any like distinct, I'm really calling it like the birthplace of corporate governance, the kind of the birthplace of of ESG. <laughs> do you have any distinct memories you at least like to share from that time? <laughs> well, I have to go back a little earlier than that. Go ahead. Um, you know, I met Bob Muggs when we were both working in the government. He was at a way, much higher level. He was working directly with the then vice president, uh, George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. I was working at the Office of Management and Budget. And we hit it off. We got along very well. And I was uh, pregnant with my second child and not really wanting to stay in my current job. I wanted to work part time. And he said, well, I'm starting this new company, Institutional Shareholder Services, and we're going to uh, guide large institutional investors on corporate governance. And of that sentence, I was familiar with the words guide and the, but I, none of it, <laughs> yeah. not, I didn't know anything about any of the other words. And certainly none of the things that I have done in the world of corporate governance ever came up when I was in law school. Mm-hmm. Nothing, nothing at all like what I learned in law school. So um, he explained it to me and uh, said I could work part time and said, um, you know, and I said to myself, well, this is great. Um, it's never going anywhere. The entrenched interests and the corporations will never let this move forward. And uh, we can have a lot of fun and we can be on the side of the good guys and uh, write some interesting op-eds and file some amicus briefs and uh, I'll work part-time forever because it's never going to get off the ground. Well, Bob Monks uh, was and is an incredible visionary. He was 100% right. We mm-hmm. hit the ground just as the world of corporate governance was beginning. And the reason for that was that there was like a crash of two different forces on the same railroad track, uh, you know, rushing at each other. One of them was the rise of the large institutional investor, the mutual funds, the pension funds, the index funds, uh, which made all of a sudden a group of shareholders who were big enough and smart enough and stuck enough to care about the issues that were uh, put to them on proxy cards. And the other was because of the creation of securities that could make any size of transaction possible, including a lot of hostile transactions, you all of a sudden had this huge number of abuses of shareholders. So it doesn't really matter that much if all you're voting on is reelect the board of directors, approve the auditors. But if all of a sudden you've got all these very thorny issues about golden parachutes and green mail, uh, you've got a bunch of investors who, as I said, are big and stuck and smart, and they're fiduciaries. They have to do a good job. All of a sudden, they were saying, like, where is the independent guidance that we can get on these issues? So so Bob was uh, just an incredible uh, visionary right from the beginning, um, and that was the creation of ISS. And when we uh, sold ISS we and we sold the, uh, the other company we started, an investment fund, Lens. the part that really liked the best. It was Lens. Yeah. yeah. We really liked the best was our in-house research. Mm-hmm. And we said, let's keep that part and we'll give it because we, our, our reputations at that time were very, uh, um, you know, that we were very conflict oriented. We said, we'll give it the most boring name we can think of, the most boring institutional name we can <laughs> pop, come yeah. up with. And uh, Rick Marshall came up with the name, the corporate library. Yeah. 
And so that's how it got called the corporate library. And I said, okay, um, you know, something I've always wanted to do is look at uh, CEO employment contracts, which mm-hmm. are public, but nobody ever looks at them. So let's do two things. We'll write to all the companies and we'll say, uh, could you send us your CEO employment contract? And we'll grade them on how quickly they respond. Mm-hmm. And we'll evaluate the contracts. And um, we did. And uh, and I was uh, thinking I'd made a terrible mistake because they were all essentially drafted by the same two lawyers. They all were identical. Until we got one that was so horrible. I said, we have a winner. This is the worst. <laughs> do you CEO remember who that was? <laughs> of course I do. Um, and uh, uh, it was uh, is it Global Crossing. Global Crossing, right, and, yeah. And that one had not only was the make and model of the Mercedes he was being given as <laughs> nice. spelled out, but and not only was he had to he had to move from the East Coast to the West Coast as one often does. You have to move when you have a new job. Sure. Well, not, they were going to pay all his expenses. That's fine, but they were also going to fly his family out to visit him once a month, first class, including his mother. This is all in the contract. <laughs> first class, his yeah. His mom. Visit wow. Him yeah. Great. But the part that, which I, I knew the mother thing would, would be fun, but the part that really got me was that they were giving him two million options at $10 a share below market. Uh-huh. So- Which was, op- yeah, okay. Yeah, options that, you know, options are, su- are supposed to align your interests with the shareholders. Right, yeah. Above market. Like, they're, they're, above market. Otherwise, yeah. it was yeah, the point. exactly. But there's not, there's nothing illegal about that, right? I mean, it's it's technically no, okay. Okay, yeah. Closed. Yeah, sure, of course, it was terrible. So- that's between him and the IRS. It's not sure. illegal. Uh, so uh, that became later on uh, the 11th biggest bankruptcy in the history of the United mm-hmm. States. Mm-hmm. So that made us look smart. It was all the and, trips from his mom. I mean, it was yeah. like 80% yeah. of it. <laughs> As I said at the time, you know, I'm a mom and uh, <clears throat> we moms love it when our boys want to spend time with us. Yeah. But we're not proud of them when they externalize those costs onto the shareholders. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's that's what all my mom says. Yeah. Yeah, I say that all the time <laughs> to my son. So anyway, that's how the corporate library got started. And then later we merged with a couple of or, or bought a couple of other companies and took so, the name. Of so before the corporate library started to build a database and to start actual ratings, what was yeah. the original intention? Just a place to do research? Kind of a, a, like a like you wanted to kind of write articles and write letters, that kind of a thing? Or, or did you, at that point early on, did you think you were going to want to rate companies? And like, what what was the intention? Well, my dream ever since I had been at ISS was to rate boards of directors like Bonds. You know, there was a idea that you just automatically vote for the for the board. But of course, the board is picked by and paid by and informed by the CEO. Mm-hmm. And some of them are better than others. When I first got into this business, it's hard to believe, but OJ Simpson was on five boards. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And was one Comcast, half of, right? Uh, audit committee. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He was uh, on the uh, audit committee of one of them. Right. Even know anything more about auditing, you know, than a, a toddler. So uh, that would be the kind of thing that I would explain to, to, the shareholders, I say this, this should be a risk factor for you. If somebody puts O.J. Simpson on the audit committee, that isn't because he wants the audit committee to do a good job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, And there were a number of people who were on 10 boards, uh, and that was not good either. So I said, you know, let's – and, you know, they have to tell you whether they attend at least 75 percent of the meetings. And um, 
if they don't, you know, maybe that's something we should respond to in some way. So I said, sure. so, the, so the corporate library really began with this idea that we were going to rate boards of directors in terms of the risk that they mm-hmm. provide for an investor. Well, we couldn't get any investors interested in it, but uh, we did get, I thought this was the greatest market test in the world, the director and officer liability insurers interested. Right. Uh, and we were very good at predicting bad. We were not good at, at all predicting good. But but if you can tell people what are the riskier investments, if you can explain that to them, that in addition to, to the traditional indicators that they look at, that they've got, you know, the O.J. Simpson problem or something like that, you know, that's of value. And my dream was that um, the DNO liability insurers would walk into the boardroom and say, well, we're raising uh, your premiums because Nell says you're a terrible board. Oh. And <laughs> I love that. And that kind of that kind of happened. So yeah, so that was the corporate library, and that that was uh, we did that for quite a while. I, I don't like I, I, the. How do you feel that basically the global crossing? Um, I just read uh, like a, 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 a proxy in which the CEO gave himself zero dollars, but four hundred fifty million dollars worth of options, and his annual salary looks like it's you know thirty thousand bucks a year or something. Right. But he gets four hundred fifty thousand dollars in private security a year, and then right. four hundred fifty million in options. Basically, Global Crossing is the template for the modern contract. Yeah. Well, and. He- it's amazing to me that these the the people that we that we pay the most in the whole world don't want to pay for anything themselves. I mean, seriously, the right. man has got enough money to pay for his own whatever his Mercedes. His uh, at, at one company we had two uh, two housekeepers in the man's home. In, in the, in the, home. Yeah, in the it was in his contract. It's in the contract. Yes, it was in the contract. <laughs> wow. It, it was it was hidden. What they'd said was. Uh, that there would be two employees of the company who would be assigned to his home for hygiene purposes. <laughs> oh, my oh God. yeah. And that was his maid. And what? So, I, don't, I don't even understand the rationale there. Why not just increase the salary or increase yeah. the bonus and not tell us what he's up to in his home? I don't. Exactly. I don't understand that at all. The ego. richest people in the world are also, in a way, the cheapest people in the world because at at some point, I mean, this is just sort of behavioral economics. At some point. When you can buy everything in the world, the most valuable thing to you is something you you can't buy or something you don't have to buy. And so they there are all kinds of weird things. I think probably the worst, and this is actually the thing that got me interested in uh, employment contracts, is that when we were at Lens, we would invest in companies that that was an investment fund. And we would invest in companies that, as my parents used to say about me, were not living up to their potential. Mm-hmm. And we would go in and try to make governance changes so that they would do better. And we did very well on that and sold it in 2000. But anyway, one of the companies uh, we invested in, this is the only time this ever happened to me. I got a call from a portfolio manager on Wall Street who was also invested in the company. And he said, uh, have you seen this guy's see his pay? And I said, yeah, I read the proxy. He, he uh, went without a bonus because uh, the company didn't meet its goals. I thought that was actually pretty good. He said, ugh, you know, the month after the proxy was printed, they adopted a new contract with him. Mm-hmm. Did you see that? And I said, no. And he said, I'm faxing it to you. This was a while ago. So he faxed <laughs> it to me. And standing in the room with the fax machine, I read it as it came off, and then I immediately faxed it to the New York Times, which printed it, and he was fired a month wow. later. So 
Wow. Here's what was in his contract. As I said, they hadn't met their goals. The stock was tanking. And he was awarded, first of all, his homes and the taxes on his two homes were going to be paid for by the company because sure. he needed them to do his job as opposed to the rest of us who just have our homes as a hobby or something. Right. I don't Okay, fine. <laughs> but also, he had a five-year pay or play. So he was fired, but he did get the full five years, the present mm. value. But the thing that really blew my mind was that he got a boatload of stock options at a strike price to be named later. Oh, <laughs> so they were going to wait to see how low the stock was going to go before they decided. Who was this? Uh, this was CEO. Oh my gosh, I'm going to have to think about it for a minute. I'll I'll, I'll have to tell you later. Okay. I can't remember name of the company right now wow but here's the thing you, you i mean like global crossing effectively becomes a template for future employment contracts that we're seeing still today like with their sure. insanity it's just kind of backwards insanity and the dream of rating directors right um yeah. which we are currently trying to do ourselves now like years and years later yeah. we're still getting the same reactions that you got investors aren't interested and the yeah. directors of that board okay the contract and then fire him has anything changed? I mean, like, I know things are changed in terms of like things are get disclosed more, but it does seem like there's a certain entrenchment in the expectations of directors and, and CEOs and that, that hasn't really. You know, I have a very Dickensian best of times, worst of times mm -hmm. uh, feeling about it, because as I think back on Bob and me um, in the early days of ISS, because it took us uh, three years before we got any client other than Bob's college friend who took pity on. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need then some college friends, Matt. Yeah, apparently, that's what we're missing. <laughs> yeah, and um, and so we had a lot of time to you know to talk about things and say what how will we know if we've succeeded? Sure. And one of the ways was uh, that that corporate governance would be taught in business schools and law schools. That mm. certainly has happened. But overall, I would say that. Boards are vastly better. Than oh yeah, they no, there's no so, doubt. Yeah, yeah. No, no. We don't have the O.J. Simpsons. We don't mm -hmm. have the museum director who was on the risk committee at uh, was it Lehman Brothers. Uh, <laughs> we don't have you know. So so all of that vastly better. There was a brief period where directors were getting retirement plans. You know, you don't need a retirement plan from a part time sure. job. Um, thank goodness for the wonderful shareholder activist, Bill Steiner. He knocked all of those out in, in the pace of a couple of years. So, and, and investors are vastly more engaged, more interested, more aware of these issues than they ever were. So all of that, very good. I, I just read something about how investors are really pushing back on uh, golden parachutes. Good for them. Mm -hmm. um, thanks to Sarbanes-Oxley and Dodd-Frank, yes, we have better disclosure, but we also have more shareholder power. Shareholders have say on pay. It may not be a lot, but it's a little. And, um, and uh, there are many more shareholder proposals. So I think in some ways things are a lot better certainly with regard to CEO pay. I mean, I laugh now when I think that the first CEO pay plan I ever complained about was $11 million, which is chump change today. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about CEO pay specifically because it's, it does seem to be the one area that the, the popular culture has caught up to. Like it's, you see it in the vernacular of the, like it's the one element of corporate governance of ESG that people they it, it really just it, it gets their attention right and in fact in the in the united auto workers uh uh 
strike against the Ford, GM, and Stellantis, they use CEO pay ratio as a way to kind of get at the emotions of regular people. So Same it, a uh, SAG and uh, Writers Guild. Uh, right, exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and Netflix was an easy target there because they have two co-CEOs making hundreds of millions of dollars. But yeah. No, no, no. So they my, have two co-CEOs and an executive and a founder. chair founder. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right, that's like, true. That's true. three CEOs. So my question is, then why... Why do those totals? They they keep just astronomically rising at this very steady pace. And and even though there's a mechanism in the annual meeting for shareholders to show up, and and I know that they're not they're not binding, unfortunately. But why can't we get any control over this? It's like, but because you're right. Because when you look at boards, and Matt and I always and I always joke about like the boards in the United Kingdom because they're so boring because. They really do corporate governance well. And from an analyst perspective, I got nothing to complain about, which sucks for me. But wh- why pay? Why can't we do anything with pay? Wh- wh- what's the deal there? I don't understand it. Yeah, that is that is a problem. But it goes back to what I already said. Who, who picks the board of directors? The mm-hmm. CEO. Who pays the board of directors? And who picks the, the compensation committees? Who, who picks the compensation committees? I remember... I was uh, talking to a CEO some years ago, and I asked him about his board, and basically what he said was he had um, nine uh, white men and a black woman professor of um, diversity studies. And I said, I hope she's not on the compensation committee. And he said, yeah, of course she is. You know, why wouldn't she be? And so... um, uh, you know, that's the problem. What I have said over and over is mm-hmm. that nobody should be allowed to serve on a board unless you can get at least 50% of the shareholder vote. And if we can't vote off directors who overpay the CEO, you know, you have somebody like Ken Langone who served on the compensation committees of three of the most outrageous pay plans uh, in history. Um, if we can't vote those people off the island, then uh, then we'll never see a change. But right so, now it's a closed so loop. Do you have any ins- yeah, do you have any insight as to why we can't seem to vote off those people? So we so we just covered yesterday a company called Biotechni where sixty five percent of shareholders voted against Seon Pay, which is incredible. But one thing we always look at and we cover this almost weekly is that none of these shareholders targeted the compensation committee that has been coming up with these terrible pay plans year after year. In fact, Matt, we have potential clients pushing back on us saying, you know, you, we don't want you to rate directors. We think you're being a little too aggressive. We don't want to offend directors. So you have any insight as to why, what's going why is, on? Why is everyone a snowflake? I, I just don't, yeah, <laughs> we just don't understand. I mean, and why wouldn't, okay, let me just, I, I said a lot of things. Why wouldn't investors at least target the compensation committee if they're so angry at, on, at the pay plan? I, I, I completely agree with you. And I have said over and over to uh, institutional shareholders, if you're voting against the pay plan, vote against the comp committee. Otherwise, it's not meaningful at all. Also said, when I have spoken to securities analysts, why isn't this a bigger factor since it's the single best predictor of bad results? Uh, Why don't you look at CEO pay? Because the less sensitive- Yeah. yeah, the best sense, the most, the less sensitive it is to performance. Duh, the worst performance we get. Right. And 
And that's been proven over and over and over and over. So I don't, I don't really know. I will say this, mm -hmm. as much as I love the institutional shareholder community, uh, generally speaking, unless you're uh, Ackman or ICANN or somebody like that, you don't go into that line of work if you like to be out front and you like to rattle the cages and you like to um, uh, make but changes. Even, but even when given data, so like what we what we what we try are trying to do now, right? Like we have performance attribution for individual directors, so we can tell you which directors historically have paid CEOs more, for instance, right. on every board they've ever been on over right. the course of their careers. And when presented the data in advance, right, like as in saying, well, they are not paying the CEO a lot now, but you just added a director yeah. who has a history I of paying a lot. I went to that person. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, like there's so much that's obvious when you just, now you have a data set in front of you. And we are told routinely that like the data, we don't have enough data, you know, like ISS, we get told now ISS and Glass-Lewis are black boxes and, you know, um, but when presented the data, they say, well, that feels really aggressive. And it's like, I don't like it. It feels as if institutional investors have decided that we all live in, um, you know, Prairie Home Companion where everybody's <laughs> above average and, you know, all the women are strong. And and it's like 96 percent is the average vote for a director. Oh, yeah. I can't I can't gel it's like it's easier to be reactive than proactive. I, I I know that, but when given the data, even then, where it seems like investors have there's like a to your point about behavioral economics, there's like a social game happening that happens off balance sheet. Listen, I this is this is a related, not direct answer, but I was once arguing with a woman who her entire family were blue collar workers. They were by no means, you know, they were barely in the middle class. And she was um, uh, voting for people who wanted to cut taxes for the wealthy. Mm -hmm. And I asked her about that. And I said, you know, these proposals to tax billionaires are not going to affect you in any way. Um, they will benefit you because you will perhaps pay fewer taxes, but it, the, you know the, the taxes will go for communities and and all kinds of good things. In fact, one one of her uh, daughters-in-law was a teacher. I said this this is this is what taxes do, and she said, but someday my son could be a billionaire. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I could, yeah. So, I wrote a uh, unicorn to work today. Yeah. It's subverting the American dream in some way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh -huh. And so I think there's sort of that cowboy ethos. But uh, believe me, what you're asking has been a big frustration in my life uh, since I've been in this field because I am somebody who is an advocate. I do speak out. I do want to rattle cages. I do want to change things. And it's very, very hard to get, you know, to to, to move the sleeping elephant. Um, I want to jump to a different topic. And, and the reason why I started with the corporate library, cause I kind of wanted, you know, to, to now that we're 20 years later, at least from the corporate library, but even okay. further from, of course, when you met Bob, um, the anti ESG anti woke movement, we don't really know what to call They're it over here. This is a, a, a topic that we didn't think we would be covering when we started our company, but now of course it is, uh, uh, you know, a weekly occurrence. And I know you testified in front of Congress recently, Matt and I watched together and loved your testimony, but um, quick thoughts on the anti ESG movement. Like is, I, okay. It's not, could it, could have you predicted it? it like, I, I, yeah, go ahead. Look, 
it calls itself an anti-ESG movement. But well, I'm, e- I'm calling it that. I don't know. That's yeah, fine. that's fine. It calls itself an, e- an anti-ESG movement in the same way the anti-reproductive rights people call themselves pro-life. It's a, sure. it's a, it's a fake term and right. it has nothing to do with anything. And even the people who call themselves anti-ESG are pretty much okay with G and, and some of S. Well, that's the they, joke. Yeah, that's our joke yeah. is that they are ESG analysts. They're, they're just- Of course they are. Yes, yes. They find different weights to all of the right. facts. And of course that's true. And you know who is one of the biggest, uh, in terms of rhetoric, one of the biggest anti-ESG figures is presidential candidate uh, Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. Yeah. But his financial disclosures show that his personal investments are very ESG oriented. So he started an anti-ESG uh, fund, which is underperforming, and he started an anti-ESG proxy advisory service, which as far as I can tell only has one client. And as far as I, I asked them for a copy of one of their analyses, but they didn't send it to me. Mm-hmm. And I'm under, I've been told it, their analysis is just vote with management. That's that's what they're promoting. So, you know, it's it's just completely phony. It is hugely sure. funded by the fuel by the fossil fuel companies. And it is absolute baloney. And I have testified before Congress many, many times. I'm used to being asked very tough questions. I enjoy that because, to be honest with you, I do this stuff 24-7. They do it one week out of the year. It, so, and it shows. In the, can I just say it definitely yeah. shows <laughs> yeah, in, those, in those hearings. Yeah. Yeah. But in this case, they didn't ask me hard questions. They just pretended I wasn't there. And every time the hmm. four men who were testifying on behalf of the Republicans said things that were absolutely not true, I would say, well, actually, for example, they would say, uh, they love this term. They would say, Glass-Lewis and ISS are a duopoly and no one can compete. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy, as a side hustle, set up this Mm -hmm. uh, competitor. So obviously that's not true. I said, I've done it before. I could set up one in two weeks. Right. And it would be easier now than it was when we did it, because believe it or not, we had to get everything on paper. They didn't have everything online. We had to get the proxy statements and mail our analyses out on paper. We had a Xerox machine going all the time. So it's a lot easier to do it now. And also the industry has been established. It's a lot easier. I said that that's ridiculous to say that's a, a duopoly or, you know, so I, and, and they would talk about the incredible burdensome of, of, uh, of shareholder proposals. And I would say, give me an example of a shareholder proposal that you think is not legitimate to be voted mm-hmm. on by the shareholders. They don't have one. You threw out a stat during the congressional <clears throat> hearing about like, you know, you're really talking about like 2% of all right. proposals, like 98% are di- just directors. And, right. and you're talking about it for like the top 50 companies, the biggest in the companies in the world. Yeah, only, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, like exactly. these are the pe- people who are the most well-funded. So when you're talking about like the difficulty in responding to a shareholder proposal, you're talking about who Amazon's difficulty yeah. or what, what are we talking <clears throat> exactly. about? Exactly. Yeah. That, that's what they, that's what their lawyers are there for. And when they say, you know, there's, I said, they're, it's self-reported. They say it costs us this amount of money to respond to these things. That's not an audited figure. I think they just made it up. Mm-hmm. So, well, the, and, the, and the number they made up, actually, frankly, was something like $150,000 or 600000 It was like less than a million dollars per proposal to companies right. that literally are making billions and billions a second. Right? Well, like, yeah. What are we talking? But why about? wouldn't you want to know what your shareholders think? Yeah, it's non-binding. 
Worst right. thing that could happen is 100% of your shareholders vote in favor of the proposal, and then you go tell them, go back home. We'll see yeah. you next year. You know, Which I mean, they it, do. It's, yeah. it's, absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous. And what's particularly galling to me is that the Republican Party, which is supposed to stand for free markets and, uh, yeah. and economic rationality, is promoting this sort of nanny state idea that the smartest financial experts in the world are so ignorant and lazy that they cannot evaluate. Yeah. This is, this is what makes our head spin constantly. I, I, yeah. I guess it's the, tr the true irony to me is that one of the, the pioneers of corporate governance came from the Reagan administration. And I, enough said there. That's Bob Monks. And now yeah. we're fl flash forward to the future. And the party of Reagan is now yeah. trying to, yeah, trying to bring corporations to its knees. It's, exactly a, it's a funny irony. Yeah. But yeah, like. Both working. I'm a Democrat, but uh, we met working in the Reagan administration. Right. I, I mean, credit where credit is due here, because the, like Vivek was on our show uh, before oh, yeah. he announced his run. Unfortunately, um, and uh, and one of the things when you analyze Strive, I know like this is something that like Sustainalytics, our Morning Star did, but they actually didn't look at the director votes. They they don't actually vote entirely with management. They vote out in a two to one ratio women on boards. They, they actually tend to find powerful women and the data is showing us that they target powerful women and vote no against them. Now they're so okay. pitifully small as to not make a difference. I'm glad right? you brought so, this up. Yeah. But, but, uh, and then you have, and you wrote about this, um, the Microsoft proposal, yes. um, you know, the, the, Unbelievable. Like, the, like it does seem that there is a war, like, uh, like there's a very clever sort of underhanded war against any brown people, um, people who identify as women. It is a social construct to mask what you showed as like the fossil fuel industry's funding of this. And right. I'm wondering if it's, it's just a distraction. It's, it might be the most brilliant distraction tactic ever. <laughs> well, I think one of the things that drives me bananas and that I've spent like the last, I, I, when I think back in the end of my life in the pandemic, this is what I'm going to think about because <clears throat> this is what I spent my time during the, during the pandemic is that the fossil fuel companies and other corporations have created dozens, possibly hundreds of these fake groups mm -hmm. with names like yeah. the Franklin Institute or the National Center on Legal Policy. Yep. And they're all funded by the same people. They are run by the same people. And um, and they they filed comments with the government on rulemakings that appear to be coming from objective private think tanks that are absolutely bonkers. And uh, with regard to the charitable proposal that you're talking about at Microsoft, I was happy that Doug independently came to the same conclusion mm -hmm. and he wrote about it on his blog too. But yeah, it begins, it, it, you know, the, if you just look at the proposal itself, it looks kind of legitimate. It says, you know, we want to have some, uh, some information about gender disparity in yeah. pay. You go, Oh, okay. And then I said, mm, I better look at that one. And so I look at it and it goes into this thing about how it's unfair for women be, who have do who decide to have children Yep. because they make less money. Well, you know what? That's a big societal problem, um, <laughs> but it's not correct to say that there's an incentive to get an abortion. And you can, know? I, 
can I parrot something you said now on LinkedIn? Because yeah. to me, it's even worse than that because it's the, the language I use is the most odious language I've, I've seen yeah. to date. And this is from the National Legal and Policy Center. And the quote is from, this is from the proposal, women who choose not to abort their pre-born yeah. children. I mean, <laughs> and you also called out using the term transition in quotes. I mean, this is really the most insidious thing I've seen. It's just pure hateful theater. It's crazy. It, it, it is It is absolutely despicable. And you have to say to yourself, who is behind this? Yeah. What is this in aid of for the National Center on Legal Policy or whatever it is? You know, really? Um, it Well, first of all, I can tell you it's Prob, as I said in what I wrote, I'm predicting it will not get enough of a vote no. to qualify for resubmission. Okay, because yeah. holders are smart and they do sure. read things. Yeah. And but yeah, it's it is. We've been tracking is, these, and they're all like what, Matt? They're like below one percent. A lot of them, right? Yeah. The, oh yeah, yeah. The average of these yeah. is is yeah. abysmal. Yeah. Yeah. C- can I can I interject one other thing? I did some research on this group this morning, and they have a they have a section. This is the National Legal and Policy Center. They have a section. And this is the parrot your point, Matt, about targeting women and targeting people of color. They have a section on their website about their highlights, about the targets of who they're attacking. And they've they list 20 people since 1993, roughly. Um, 11 of them are people of color. Uh, eight are women. And since 2019, five out of the last six targets have been women of color. They are <laughs> they are systematically targeting. But look, a specific no, but but I'm saying like th- that's the game, right? This is like it's not an anti ESG thing. They're they're going after a segment of our population. It's it's right there in their exactly. highlights. And, and 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 yet they call themselves the National Center on Legal uh, Policy. Yeah, national white national, I suppose. I don't. Yeah, <laughs> no, but seriously, like it's right there in the data yeah. they present. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, they're yeah, and and I I I. Uh, in an attachment, an appendix to my testimony, I had a letter that I wrote to my old office at the Office of Management and Budget, which many people don't know this outside of Washington, but they are kind of the quality control on the conveyor belt of federal regulations. Everything has to go through them before it goes out. And that's a good thing because it makes sure that there's consistency between different regulatory agencies. It's a good, it's a good deal. But anyway, I said, I said to them, here are the names of some of these fake groups that you guys are giving credibility to and that you're meeting with. And you need to know who's behind it. Uh, And um, what I recommend is that when federal agencies propose rules, because they have to propose a rule and get comments before they can make the rule final, that they should say, you don't have to tell us who's paying you to file this comment, but if you don't, we're going to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, comply or explain kind of is yeah. basically a version of that. And the, and the funders, if you look at SourceWatch, you can see who's behind the National Center. There are two groups that are like in the same office, the National Center on Legal Policy and the National Policy Center for it's whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same name, basically. Basically the same name. And that's another thing. If I if I were spending $100,000 to fight uh, shareholder proposals, I would have taken those two to the SEC and said, this is the same group under two different names. Yeah. You know, uh, knock it out. Yeah, let's let's play let's play the the short game. Okay. Uh, wh- why don't we start with the? We'll, we'll stay in the ESG discussion. Let's stay with go to the quick and dirty, nerdy, agree or disagree corporate governance game. 
catchy names all the time. This is, this is what we do. I was know. a writing major at Oberlin. I, I, I had to, you know, I had to come up with things. It sounds like it sounds like what you get at IHOP, you know? Yeah, it does. It does. It's the Without number the three indigestion. at IHOP. Maybe with yeah. the indigestion. I don't know. Um, all right. All right. Go for it. So I'm just, yeah, here we go. Pretty simple, pretty nerdy. First one, disparate voting rights, you know, the, the non one share, one vote. Should they right. just be completely banned? Agree or disagree? Wow. Agree or disagree? Uh, that would be okay with me. My only caveat is that there has never been a world class newspaper that didn't have uh, dual class. Because folks. because of family? Because they're family control? Why is that? Uh, don't know. I just know that every newspaper that switched from dual class to single class uh, tanked immediately afterward. Is that right? So I think that we have a, a societal interest in an independent media. Uh, and uh, so I would I would reserve uh, that and possibly as a transition. But I'm with the Council of Institutional Investors that said that companies that do go public with dual class should have to sunset uh, promptly. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned media because it really is media and now uh, big tech, which really, I guess, is a modern day version of media. They're, they're the ones who are most known for basically having fake Except public companies, right? They're, they're controlled companies. Yeah. Big tech is a platform. They're not the media, right? Like right. They don't yeah. have the journalism. Say, yeah. Is that true, Matt? I mean, do you know how many stories we cover where they say that people now go to TikTok for, you know, for the yeah. news? And so I don't know how true that is anymore. I, yeah, I mean, but I, I mean, like a 14-year-old snorting, a, you know, a, like a, a, a detergent pod is not the same as someone on the ground in that's Gaza. That's your future right surgeon, now, right? Yeah. I'm just saying, I'm just saying like content creators, I think there is a differentiation between a content creator who can be a 12-year-old like doing TikTok dances and a journalist and yes. tech leverages like content creators and says they're they're providing information when mm-hmm. the, the reality is they're not. Well, yeah. Okay. That's a, I, there's a lot to say about that, but go on to your next question. Well, this is something we talk about all the time. This is, uh, Matt, this is your favorite topic. Controlled companies, you know, companies like uh, Meta Platforms, as an example. Right. We, we call them here fake public companies. Right. What we're wondering is that should they even be allowed anymore to, to list on these exchanges? Like why? I know there's a controlled company exemption, but, you know, why? And the, the question is here, should they just be considered private? Should we move on from controlled companies? Um, uh, <clears throat> you know, uh, the record of those controlled companies over decades is not good. It's, you know, again, that should be a, a transitional thing. It's exactly the same as the dual class okay. issue. Uh, so um, uh, buyer beware, I think, in terms of investors there. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the problem is, I guess now, I mean, this is this was not the case when I started, you know, in corporate governance 10, 15 years ago. But but now what we have is we have these big data companies who are almost to a rule uh, controlled companies, and they're the ones sort of guiding our culture into these, you know, dystopic future. So it's like now the issue becomes a little bit different, right? Because now we want, we need oversight over Mark Zuckerberg in a way that like back in the day talking about needing oversight at a chicken processing company was a little bit different, right? So 
The right. issue has changed, I think, which is why we harp well, on also, it a lot. Also, you can't avoid investing. I mean, like your, your average retail investor buys an ETF now. They buy the right. index, right? right. So right. they get put on the index and you're forced to have them and your vote doesn't matter. because. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the gap actually to me is the buyer can't beware because the buyer is either not savvy enough um, to like set up their own full portfolio and manage it, X controlled companies, or they are savvy and they can do that, but they're moneyed and like they're they're gambling on those companies and that's their choice. Uh, and they tend to end up being the largest companies in the world and the backers of them, right? Like it's like the but, all the VCs. But I, I see a little bit of a, a pinprick of light at the end of that tunnel because I think um, that the, you know, Musk's disastrous acquisition of Twitter has opened up uh, possibilities for com competitors. I'm on everything. I'm on Blue Sky. I'm on Mastodon. I'm on everything. Mm -hmm. And one like Post, where you can make micro payments to read news articles, I think is very promising. I think mm -hmm. that, and, and I also think that Musk is learning that advertisers do not want to be surrounded by the kind of junk he's allowing on the platform. So I, I, I see a little bit of a uh, potential there. I, I'll say Musk is a fascinating case in general because he's like, a, uh, he's the example of me of, of ESG going right. Because in the sense that the, you're seeing, especially in the last two or three years, you're seeing the public react to who he is as a CEO how he treats his workers, yeah. how he, you know, it's just the way he, how he treats the all stakeholders and they're pulling back from him, which really is kind of a, a an analogy of the ESG world. Like what you were saying about originally about how you originally were just putting, just identifying risk, right? You're just kind of putting yeah. red flags and things. And that's, I think where ESG gets things right with people like Elon Musk. Kimball's on the board. You want to know where it's even righter than that is... Uh, everybody's favorite uh, guy on the witness stand, uh, Samuel Bankman-Fried, because uh -huh. yeah. there there couldn't be a bigger G red flag than a company that board doesn't have a CFO, doesn't have a risk officer, a risk and compliance officer. Um, nobody, think you know, nobody in in the U.S. could possibly have thought about investing in him with any any kind of rational assessment. Right. I'm in the middle of Michael Lewis's book. I have read I read his book, which I love, and I disagree with a lot of criticism of it. And I'm now reading Number Go Up, which is the other book about crypto, which I'm enjoying very much. And I will send you guys the uh, article I wrote about my ideas about crypto. Right. I love it. Uh, next question. This is one I can't find a lot of people to agree with me on this one. Uh, CEOs should be excluded from boards. Oh, I don't think it would make any difference whatsoever. Really? Uh, Why? Yeah. Huh. There's a limit to structural uh, so structural changes, structural solutions. Uh, you take the CEO uh, off as a board member, he's still going to be in the room. Right, I'm gonna that's true. Right. I'm going to see he's still in the room. He still controls the uh, quantity, quality, and timing of the information they receive his and their access to other employees. Uh, so I don't think it would have any effect whatsoever. Okay. It's one thing we don't talk about because we can't quantify it appropriately, but it is that it's who is also in those boardrooms, like who is at those meetings. You know, we always talk about the emeritus chair and how ridiculous it is that they're there. They founded the company and they're sitting there staring at everybody. And But you're right. Like, 
Uh, it's something I forget is that there are other people in those rooms who are not voting members who are making everyone else feel uncomfortable, right? I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. You should talk to Doug Cha about that. He's been he's been in the room where it happens. Doug's yeah. coming back on the show. We'll last, we can ask him. Yeah. Uh, how about this one? This is an ultra nerdy one. This is something that uh, pissed you off, Matt, recently. Uh, there's this tendency, in at least in America, where boards... Uh, yes, there's the song and dance of the annual meeting voting on directors. Um, but what they do is they, they appoint the director first to the board... And then they ask the shareholders to basically rubber stamp that appointment. So our question is, should we, should we abolish this practice? Should the, should yes. the director? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, finally, Easy someone agrees with me. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> it drives me bananas. You sign a contract with, with a person and put them on the board. And then like three months later, you're asking investors to, right. to, to approve it or ratify it. And it's like at that point, Who's going to say no? You just did. So, so there's no slate anymore, right? Like you're not going to vote that person out. It's like, so proxy access actually, it's like a end around proxy access. Like, oh, yeah, our board is exactly. full. We appointed the director. Yeah, absolutely. What about uh, having uh, a contested slate? Like, like um, having directors, instead of just putting up one director, what about putting up two directors for one slot? Do you, do you, do you think, do you like that as a? solution having you having uh the nominating committee put up two directors yeah for, for any slot no, you have to you have to no, do more than one no no I, my my solution as i said is that uh no one should be allowed to serve unless he or she gets more than 50 percent of the vote and okay. that that way we get to vote them off but i don't think uh, uh, if the kind of people that serve on boards which is a whole other conversation, but the kind of people who serve on boards have no interest in subjecting themselves to something like that. Really? I like, is everybody a snowflake? I had, I had this dream with uh, like <laughs> John Lukomnik. I asked him about this. I was like, wouldn't it be great if everybody had to get up on stage and give like a stump speech, right? Like at the AGM. <laughs> and then like investors are like, wow, I really like what, you know, Jack's uh, philosophy is, but the strategy My that Jane had. If it sailed, as you very well know. <laughs> I just can't believe it, like how how delicate everybody seems to be. Like no, they wouldn't subject themselves to that. Yeah, it's two hundred thousand dollars a year, and you show up three times. I think you can you can handle like four questions before you get the appointment. I would hope. I don't so know that, how many meetings have you ever been to where you've asked questions of the board members directly. I, not enough. Honestly, not enough. I've been in, I've been to some, but the, but you're right. There's a lot of ego in those rooms that I've been in. Yeah. To that point, do you think Matt and I always argue about this? Do you think that the younger generations are going to embrace like just the idea of this alternative democracy that is shareholder voting? And uh, yeah. you, know, we, you, you I, do. Another positive note: I think that um, the younger generation now um, is a lot more like. I, I, not like people think of baby boomers now, but like the baby boomers actually were. Right. <laughs> Demonstrating in the streets, mm -hmm. war in Vietnam, um, women's rights, voting rights, all of that, and uh, anti anti commercialism. Uh, I think this is the most anti commercial uh, generation since the baby boomers, mm -hmm. and and I think that as consumers and as investors and as employees, they've shown that they make climate change a priority. And so, yeah, I think I, I have a very positive feeling about them. We can That's just get a vote, uh, both in for. 
uh, on shareholder matters and on political matters, that would be great. So Matt, that's a win for me, Matt, on that one. I, that's a win. She, for you, she's yeah. agreeing with me, Matt, on that one. Yeah, because well, I, I just, I, I honestly don't. I think they're too busy, like in their crypto wallets and their TikTok, to to pay attention. But they to. like outrage, and this is a perfect sort of medium for <laughs> we just outrage. Manufacture no? more. Now, yeah. help us manufacture well, more. They've, they, you know, in their lifetime, they've seen m- the institutions fail in a major. Yes. And I, so I think they have a lot of skepticism and um, and and a lot of idealism too. Yeah, and this is direct access to that. I mean, we call it the alternative democracy, um, but this is direct access to having an input into these into things that they do care about and talk yeah. about quite often. Yeah. All right, Matt's telling me to rush to get it to get to wrap it up. Rush. Oh, I have no. one more question. I'm telling no. you, Nell has a life. I know. I know. I'm enjoying this. It. I'm enjoying this. Okay, this is my this is my final question of the day. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. So I, I keep kind of fantasizing about. Uh, kind of reimagining the American board model and kind of modeling it after some kind of a version of a stakeholder capitalism where instead of uh, kind of randomly assigning board seats that we we have defined roles in, in the sense that as an example, like should boards have at least one employee representative? Like should, should, should there, you know what I mean? Should there be, uh, instead of just, having a CEO from another company, should these seats mean something? Should they represent something? Like represent some stakeholder constituent? Like this board seat was brought to you by the Hemsley's family, right? Like uh, uh, whatever you want to call it. But yeah, I mean, as a, as a, as a different way of, of attacking like the skills necessary for, for what these boards are trying to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, uh, it has never worked uh, okay. to been tried. Uh, I'm certainly very open-minded about it, and my answer to you is it's a big, wonderful world out there, and the first corporation to step forward and say, this is our vision, this is what we're going to do, we'll let the market decide how that that plays out. You know, I'm glad you said it like that because, yeah, I know I've never – I've been looking at these proxies for so many years. I've never seen actually a company reimagine its interpretation of what the board is or – everyone is sort of – uh, really doing the same thing, right? I mean, uh, well, as I said, boards have, however, have have improved tremendously in terms sure, of the sure. quality of the people that are on them and the and the focus that they put on it. In terms of the stock ownership of the board members, uh, you know, I one of the first reports I ever did at ISS was a list of board members who didn't own a single share of stock. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know who was at the top of that list? Enron. Ah, <laughs> well, they were busy selling off this stock. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, so and at, at that time, Enron was, you know, was everybody's darling. Everybody loved it. But mm-hmm. if the sure, if the directors don't want to buy the stock, then you know that's that you, that should right. tell you the canaries are dying in the coal mine. So um, uh, when I say to the extent it's been tried, I'm thinking about Germany, where they have sure. the second board. I'm thinking about companies where the employees owned the company, like United Airlines for a while, and there was a, a mining company where the employees owned it, and all of them have turned out very badly. Um, there were there have been companies where the ESOP owned the company, turned out very badly. So nobody's figured out- Interesting. Uh, what, what makes the model bad in, like, say, Germany, for example? Is it just too many people in the boardroom? Like, what- The rhetoric, be, the rhetoric is very, very far from the reality. Okay. Uh, Employee board has almost no authority. And They're has, muted. Okay. Yeah. No surprise. Okay. So, yeah. 
That's all I have, Matt. You want to wrap us up? You have any final yeah, words? Yeah, this was awesome. Uh, whatever moniker you want to go by, the <laughs> the godmother Friend of, to the show. of governance, the, <laughs> the, the maestro of um, corporate accountability, whatever you like, movie mom, all the things. Um, but I had like in, in the run up to this, I, I was thinking about like, oh, we should do games about like the, you know, which, um, movie characters that are Next billionaires, time. would you vote against? Or like, <laughs> what, like I had like, they're just about corporate governance. Uh, yes, exactly. yes. Wait, is a classic movie. It's a woman's world is a CEO succession uh, movie. Those are movies from the 40s. Um, and of course, I have a whole long list of, of corporate governance movies uh, that. Oh, uh, I see. I didn't know this. See, and, and this is yeah. one that you've never heard of. That is the one that I recommend the most often. It's uh, based on a true story. It's called Owning Mahoney with okay. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, I already love it. And it's a true story of the biggest bank embezzlement in the history of Canada. Hmm. And uh, and it, it's the movie is a classic example about how every single person in the movie, the embezzler, the bank board, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police who are investigating it, the casino manager who can tell that this guy shouldn't be betting millions of dollars, but he is. Everybody's assessing risk all the time. And some do it better. The loan, the company, um, the, the the bank turns down in the first scene of the movie. The bank turns down one of their biggest depositors for a loan, and she's the one because they're assessing totally misassessing the risk because her account is about to be embezzled. So, uh, <laughs> so it's a wonderful, wonderful corporate governance movie, and of course, Philip Seymour Hoffman, absolutely terrific. Great. I, these are all the pl- places that we need to go next time. That's it. A huge thanks to Nell for joining us. We're definitely going to have her back again since Damien had like 35 questions he didn't actually ask her in that hour. Uh, This show today was brought to you by FreeFlow Analytics, the only platform that you can get the data you can use to rate your director's performance, thus fulfilling Nell's lifelong dream of rating director performance. You can get that there. FreeFlowAnalytics.com. Go check that out. We'll be back tomorrow to wrap the week. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.